0: Hello, and thank you for joining us on Mapping the Zone, a podcast dedicated to informal discussion of the works and context of Thomas Pinchon. My name is Cody. I'm one of the co-hosts. I'm Will. I'm Luke. And I'm Kate. And today we are discussing chapters 6 through 10 of Mason and Dixon. Um, last week we covered the first five. If you're not um, aware, we are following the reading order right now uh, that's on the Pynchon subreddit. Uh, So you can check over there to kind of see where we're going. If anything changes as far as what chapters we're reading uh, as we go, we'll certainly let everybody know. But uh, as for right now, we are following that reading order. So this week is chapter six through 10. Uh, We'll do the next five chapters next week. Uh, But Will, can you give us a summary of this uh, little selection of chapters?
1: Absolutely. Well, continuing from where we left off, The Royal Society does not take Mason and Dixon's refusal to approach Ben Coulin with much grace, interpreting it as insubordination rather than an announcement of capability. Eventually though, they relent, though neither we nor they know where to. Reboarding the seahorse, Cherry Coke is instructed not to show a hint of his viable while sailing, for according to his lieutenant cabin mate, it always inspires rebellion and immoderation. Wicks is unsure how to interpret such an immoderately ascetic ideal. As they sail southward, they encounter another small frigate. As such ships are unwanting of companionship, the new captain of the seahorse Grant decides to fly a pirate's flag so to scare the other ships off of any foolish ideas of the sort. Later, they intercept the path of yet another, as instructed, and make parley. Grant receives a small package of memoranda, and is instructed not to open them until reaching the short-term objective of Tenerife for restocking. They continue onward, and the reader is treated to a surfeit of goofy sea tales, including a sailor so asleep. He's not even awakened by the presence of flares set between his toes, but becomes the creme de la creme of shipmen when tricked into a post. Fender belly Bodine getting up to no good with a block of wood, and the first-timers, our main crew, being tasked with crawling across the deck and kissing Bodine's belly to celebrate crossing the equator. The boys back in the parlor find this hilarious, sporting, and the Reverend compares it to the fun of having a a pudding shoved up one's nose. That shuts them up. Charles and Jeremiah pass the time aboard by imagining themselves solving minor logistical puzzles imagined as grocery runs and seductions they'll make on Sumatra. The reverend jumps ahead, blaming the blur on some minor mysticism aboard the boat post-Tenerife, and the pair arrives in Cape Town, Dutch South Africa. They are received by a representative of the Dutch East India Company, a Menier Banque, who wastes no time in disapproving of Mason's wide-ranging mind and assuring them that their stay will be no more autonomous than they had been upon the ship. He opens a file on each of them. The Zeeman house welcomes them to stay, but they dine at the neighbor's, the Frooms, whose innumerable daughters seem intent on playing footsie with the pair. Despite such entertainment, the food is repellently bland enough to take much of the fun. Mason is surprised to find himself the target of most of the sexual signaling, whereas Dixon is entirely unfazed by the general air of distrust which seems to surround him as a Quaker, seen as just unchristian as the Hindu and Malay residents. We meet the girls, turning out to be only three in number. Yet, great and else in order of birth. Yet fusses over her hair, great tide's hearse, and else's own is perfect, but each share ambitions and lust. Their father, Cornelius, has forbidden any native or even Malay cooking for fear of alimentary spice-fostering the moral variety. The man is terrified of inevitable racial revolt and sits fondling his rifle and smoking, anxiously considering the imminent threats. The daughters, heedless, pursue Charles Mason, warded off by their mother Johanna. She, in turn, flirts with him, leaving the widower deeply disturbed and broadly confused. Thankfully, only later that night, the favored house slave, Ostra, enters his bed, waking him and informing him of their plot, to have, to have her impregnated by his so-white personhood for profit. Ostra kindly recognizes his discomfort and leaves him, leaves him be for the evening. The next day is constrained to the house for lack of clear skies to observe. Mason is tormented by this horrible multi-party charade, and so they set off seeking a disgust potion for Johanna. Mason hoping that by disabling her lust for her slaves, his assault will too end, but they cannot find it despite ceaseless rumors of attainability. The topic of slavery begins to drive a wedge between he and Dixon, Mason far too comfortable with the luxury afforded thereby for his partner's taste. Regardless, stranded with one another on this ship of Dutch corporation, they begin trawling the taverns and restaurants all nights long. Mason begins having nightmares, and is guided to a Malay elder, who advises him in the interpretation of dream states as real. And the next time, Mason knows what to do, kick the sleep assailant until he's down, and demand a token of defeat. He wakes, to a knife under his nose, the same one he'd demanded. Meanwhile, Dixon is tormented with the possibility of having to leave the colony without a reliable source of ketchup for the future. They interrogate one another's provenance, each appearing clearly and sinisterly connected to the great shadowy powers that surround them to the other. In the end, they accept the plain truth, but still are left wondering. The Reverend confides in his family that, had they considered the outside view, they could have maneuvered their falsely totemic appearances for better fates, and Ethelmer finds it all so small contrasted against the ultimate and shared one. Dixon spends his cloudy days and nights bathing in the sensuality provided by the globally sourced markets of food, drink, incense, and drug, stalking the colony like an affable hunter for experiences to add to his collection. He's shocked to find Mason back at the Frome seemingly engaged in platonic relationships with each of the girls. We see vignettes of the semi-charmed lives of such heirs of race, their own habits not so distinct from those of comfort girls kept more explicitly by the company in its brothels instead of estates. The two Englishmen have shifted their perspective, made implied notice in their own stolidity of habit, and so Crete and Ostra trace their steps after the curfew one evening. All they find worth sharing is the sheer quantity of food and drink consumed. The men are horrified by both the food of the home and its bottomless implications. In such a pursuit of exotic, or at least palatable, foodstuff, they run across Wick's Cherry Coke and catch up over Mango. They assumed he'd he'd continue with the Seahorse East, but it seems Captain Grant did him a sort of favor and left him in Cape Town. He fears being able to find passage elsewhere, having been told his occupation is unsavory to the majority of sailors who pass through the Cape, and the duo each offer lessons in the other's expertise. Regardless of whatever progress Mason may have thought he was making in avoiding the scheming of Johanna, it continues daily, resulting in the regular tossing of himself out of windows, hanging from balconies, ascending ladders. He and Dixon, despite the levity found in their nightly voyaging, sit and dream together of how much nicer their work may have been, let alone their living, had they been sent to their requested viewpoint Scanderoon. Hoping for hijinks, the girls take Ostra with them as they follow Mason up the mountain to the Shack Observatory where they collect their data. They surprise Mason, but are subsequently disappointed themselves by Dixon's arrival. Further dashing their plans, the lensmen take the opportunity to play dumb, turn the tables, induct them into their world, a.k.a. bore them with a lecture on the nature of parallax and the purpose of their measurements. Despite their best efforts to frame the material as relevant to the girls' lives, they struggle to listen. In the parlor, the twins prepare the family orrery for demonstration of this material, and all this discussion of Venusian dynamics seems to establish the first hints of tension between Tenebrae and her cousin Ethelmer. On the Cape, a shift in social tides is felt by the guests, and a shift in their moods is felt by their hosts. The Dutch are seeming a touch more respectful to their underlings, and very much energized by the clear skies above while the Englishmen are seen to be more calm, perhaps encouraged by the good fortune of weather. They make their observations, finding an unaccounted-for gap between each of their recorded times, and blame one another, of course. The shift in culture seems to stay around for a few months, but eventually all returns to the previous norm. The phase inspires some curiosity about the secrets of the Quakers and Mason, who inquires Dixon. The majority does his best, but the astronomer is too impatient to make much use of the instructions. When it's time to leave, nobody sees them off except the same official who welcomed them, Bonk. He asks them to pass on a good word about his demeanor to the officials back in London, and promises that their ignorance of such an intelligence office makes no difference regarding its reality. In the parlor, Cherry Coke remembers Tannerbury's childhood adoration of nature, and when Pitt and, Pin- Pitt and Pliny attempt to wrest back the attention, their aunt Euphrenia tuts. She threatens they'll be sent away, sold off to foreign lands, where for they'll be left without the comforts of familiarity. And she should know, telling tall tales of her own about her position in an Asian harem. Travails and odysseys full of puzzles solved by a helpful tootle of her oboe.
0: All right. So, I want to start just with everyone's general feeling on this set of chapters.
2: Um, so I've actually... Um spent about two or three weeks of my life in cape town uh where the bulk of this section is is set um you know i maybe this is a bit oversharing, but you know I've, I've smoked daga which is uh you know marijuana the the south south african word for marijuana uh, i've been out drinking in cape town um because uh, my family does some uh, philanthropy work in Zambia, which is a few countries up, but you have to um, fly through South Africa. So this is maybe my favorite part of this, cha- of this book, um, just because I have such a personal connection to it. And because, you know, not a lot of people have, have been to Cape Town. Um, I did really love this section, uh, mostly because of my personal connection with, with Cape Town.
3: I think that the chapters are, are pretty interesting. Um, there's a lot going on in them. Like they they feel pretty dense, but they don't necessarily advance the plot forward all that much. Obviously, you're just slowly making your way towards the the actual transit of Venus which happens at the end of it. Um there's a lot of very interesting elements surrounding Mason in particular as he continues to try and sort out his life uh post death of his wife and all of the different things that he's trying to do to not only eschew the constant attention from the people living in this boarding house uh, the the mother and the daughters but also the the workers that are there and then you sort of have dixon going about the kind of seedy underside of the city past the the perimeter these that he's supposed to go to so there's a lot of there's a lot of color in these chapters as far as the setting goes what Cape Town may have been like at the time or may not have been like, you know, whether or not this is, this is accurately researched. I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised though, if Pinchon spent a good amount of time trying to, to look up any sources that may have been able to fill in some of that information for him on what it was like. What struck me most about the chapter is it actually cut chapters. I should say, they actually kind of reminded me of some of the thematic elements of heart of darkness by Joseph Conrad, where a lot of the, the elements in that book as you kind of have these this outside observer go into albeit a different part of africa at a different time for a different reason a lot of the thematic intent that exists in that book is to show how not only is colonialism futile it doesn't it doesn't actually lead to anything positive in the end but also that it cuts both ways that it not only oppresses and damages the population that was already living there but it also tends to turn the colonizer into barbarians and people who are who are not acting forthrightly and are are acting incredibly cruelly i got some of the same ideals particularly on the latter side as mason and dixon deal with the culture of trying to breed white children out of servants and some of the more harsh tones of of what the the colonizers were doing there in cape town which i found interesting and it it really does feel as though Pinchon is kind of setting his reader up for the eventual chapters in america as you're going to learn more about slavery and the the barbarism going on in the in the colonies at the time but they're they're very interesting chapters for for color and like place setting for what's going to come in the book i think but as far as the actual content i found that it was a bit less than you find in the first five.
2: I also connected these chapters with Heart of Darkness. I didn't necessarily know how to communicate the what like similarities and differences I found, but it did remind me of, of the same, yeah.
1: I, I very much agree with the, the thematic side of things there. It, it, it definitely feels like a premonition of what's to come. But beyond the, the theme, it, it also is the first sign of some of the, the truly zany stuff that happens in the middle of the book, you know, with, with the girls chasing Mason around the town, ha- all of the, all of the discourse of the politics and society is incredibly depressing. So it's really nice to have those very lighthearted, whimsical sections, like Dixon getting freaked out. Like, what am I going to do if I can't find a recipe?
0: Yeah, I, 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 totally agree with everything all of y'all said it it felt more you know like like Kate and Luke had mentioned kind of table setting for things to come and then also what Will said about the humor I think for me the most recognizable part of this whole five chapter section that we we read was the humor and there's a lot of it in here um and that was something on my because like I said earlier this is the second time I've read this and it was the first time that I read through it, I remember thinking, like, this is uh, probably the funniest of his works at times. Uh, it's, it's, there are certainly hilarious moments in all of his books. Aside from parts of Vineland, I think Mason and Dixon is the one that really has me laughing out loud, which I don't normally do when I'm reading. Um, but there were scenes in these five chapters that I had to, I just stopped to just kind of compose myself and then go back and reread them. Because uh, they're just absolutely hilarious.
1: Yeah, even the dialogue in these sections is just dripping with a great, great deal of delicious irony. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's some really fun, like sexual
2: innu- innuendos in this section as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there's parts of it that, and, and we'll get into it in a little bit, uh, but there's parts of it that, that have a, a very, like, 1980s TV sitcom kind of feel. To the way that the the chokes are set up, um, so I'm yeah I'm just even in in Will's recap I had to just kind of like get away from the mic for a second to to chuckle when I was thinking about those some of those scenes. But let's let's kind of start as since, since uh, Luke and and Kate mentioned it the the kind of connections to Heart of Darkness. Admittedly, it has been a long time since I've read that book, so I am not going to allude too much to that because I can't recall as much of it as I'm sure, you know, the rest of you could. But um you know, the the theme of slavery obviously comes up a lot throughout the book. Um this is where we kind of start to see those mentions of it and it will certainly get covered more um as we go through the book. But I think it's worth noting this early on the, the kind of the differing perspectives that Mason and Dixon have towards it.
2: Yeah, Dixon seems um very at home with the native cultures here. I mean, he's consistently shown to kind of um ditch Mason and the family they stay with and to hang out with um the uh the sla- like slaves and people of color in the in the colony which is a is a consistent his uh his love for um people that are not white, um, is consistent throughout this book. And I think it may be connected to his Quaker upbringing.
0: I think so. And it's, it, it's to the point that it, you know, they even talk about how the Dutch people kind of felt uncomfortable about him. Um, just because of how comfortable he was around everybody. And, and, and that's kind of, yeah, he was kind of the guy who, didn't want to stay cooped up in the house. He wanted to go out and, and be with the the people, the the people who lived in these towns, and and kind of get to know, um, get to know them and experience their experiences, and and you know, see them and treat them as people, you know, which at the time was not the norm, sadly.
1: Yeah, I think I think uh, Dixon's Quaker upbringing really has a ton to do with it because. I mean, what I don't I don't know if there was a religious organization that was more dedicated to abolition of slavery, and even I think to a lesser extent at that point in time, but uh, to some degree, uh, you know, ending patriarchy um, around the colonial period. And it's really interesting to see how you know Mason, in principle, as he insists to Ostra, for example that you know, in England they don't have slaves, but he still thinks of women in terms of property. He he he's still comfortable saying, Well, you know, I'm just a passers by here. It's okay if I play along. It's not a it's not a big deal. I'm not buying a slave. I'm not trading them. I'm just I just happen to be here whereas dixon's probably been thinking about these kinds of issues his whole life and it's probably been drilled into him from a young age that none of this is acceptable and the moment you start to feel complacent about such uh oppressive forces that's the moment you start to be evil
3: even more so than that too i think it's reflective of the different like social strata that the two of them come from and the different places in uh like england that they're actually that they're actually hailing from because you have charles mason who's sort of from a a more highfalutin class of society uh has, has a more refined way of speaking has a more you know uh wealthy upbringing probably is doing better in terms of his his actual state in life and then you have Dixon, who's not only everything we've talked about with the Quakers, but is also from, you know, a, a fairly depressed economic class, and is probably from a place that is going to be a bit more recognizable as far as maybe how the average person spends their time, or just what what it may look like, as, far as not being like a sprawling metropolis or anything like that. And so I think it's also reflective of the fact that he's not under the impression that there are people he shouldn't associate with, or that you know, people of his social class shouldn't associate with. He doesn't have those attitudes drilled into him in the way that the sort of higher end of the social strata, especially in England at the time, would have, where potentially Mason may have grown up seeing uh, servants before abolition in England and may have seen something akin to slavery more so where he came from, whereas Dixon probably does not. And it's just much easier, in a much easier fashion, is able to just see these as other people Sure, they look different. Sure, this country's different. They speak a different language, but just people might as well see what this place is like and and what I can find here.
1: And Dixon is younger than Mason, correct? Yes. Yes. And uh, of note uh, regarding that social that difference of social class is that, yeah, Mason's not like from nobility, but his you know there's a real big difference, especially back then, between a baker who runs a bakery in a small city and a country coal mining family. These are like, it seems small nowadays uh, with, with our perspective of like, you know, CEOs and shareholder billionaires compared to, you know, the small business owner. But yeah, I mean, just, just growing up in a family where you might employ people rather than being the employed is a huge difference.
0: Yeah. And I think it's, uh, surmised pretty well on um, on in my edition, page 69, where he says, um, Mason, as he comes to recognize the sorrowful nakedness of the arrangements here, grows morose. While Dixon makes a point of treating slaves with the courtesy, he is never quite able to summon for their masters. So, kind of like, yeah, like what you were saying, where, you know, their, their background definitely frames their perspective, absolutely. And I think it 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 speaks a lot to each of these characters to have these kind of, you know, up, not necessarily opposing views, but these very different views on such a, a major issue. And to kind of see how that guides each of them, you know, as as an individual throughout the narrative and, and you know, historically too, because this, uh, you know, as we've talked about, this is steeped in history and, and is, as far as I know, mostly pretty accurate to... Um, you know, historical representation, of, especially of these two.
3: It's also interesting to note to me that the the portions of these chapters where Mason is able to get outside of himself and is able to stop you know, thinking continuously about his wife or the situation that he's in with all of these women chasing after him are the scenes where he goes out on the town with Dixon and the two of them are just able to like, either engage in, in local culture or eat local food. like Those are the only portions of these chapters where he's no longer kind of neurotically obsessed with trying to understand these things that have happened to him and, and how to move on past them. So it's it's also once Mason steps outside of a world, probably similar to the one that he's comfortable with, is when he can finally sort of begin to seem like he's healing almost.
2: And one thing I'd like to know is, you know, having been to South Africa, some is that I mean, last time I was there was probably about ten years ago, but it's still a very like, I mean, apartheid's over, but it's still a largely segregated and highly stratified um country um you know you still will see like you know like miles and miles of shotgun shacks right next to a, a large upscale mall and and stuff like that you know it's <clears throat> the 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 country is still even you know like 250 years after the the setting of mason and dixon it's still um you know largely segregated um some dixon that's one thing that I think some some readers may it may go over their heads, but you know Dixon is you know going to be viewed as an iconoclast and somebody who's perhaps dangerous. So,
0: oh, most definitely, yeah. To have that perspective and those views at that time in those parts of the world was definitely not, um, not accepted, really, in a lot of places.
3: <laughs> Which Pinchon doesn't get into too explicitly here but going back to the comparison of heart of darkness you really get that in in that book in particular when the protagonist of that book whose name i'm forgetting at the moment is just having to listen to the way that these other colonizers these people who run the stations that are built in that country speak about the the people native to there and this this project that they're they're undergoing quote-unquote and so if you have some, some additional history of kind of colonial attitudes and, and what these different, again, quote-unquote projects were at the time, it, it really does fill in background detail as you're going through here and reading it in a way that I kind of wish Pinchon may have been more explicit about, but you can it, it's not too hard to read between the lines, uh, especially when talking about the the way that they're trying to, to breed whiter children out of the people that are native to there.
1: Yeah, and uh, I'm not sure if it's too visible in the text. I haven't noticed it too explicitly. But there may be something to be seen in the, you know, there is definitely some Heart of Darkness illusion going on in this book throughout it, uh, and Pynchon's work in general. But uh, I, I wonder if there isn't in this novel some discussion of the difference between the heart of darkness era um, of racism, in which it was after the essentially the institutionalization of race in science as a, as a paradigm, um, versus this where it was still pretty much only you know a 100, 150 years into what we think of as colonialism nowadays, and race was being formed at this point in time the con- the conception of you know, uh, the specific Western conception of race as separate and sup- superseding ethnicity.
0: So to kind of bridge from the... to Let me start that sentence over. To, to sort of bridge from that uh, topic into the theme of, of paranoia, which kind of runs, you know, as we've mentioned countless times, I think at this point, uh, through pretty much all of Pinchon's work, um, you, you kind of get a few instances of, of that coming in and, and specifically the first one that came to mind when we were, when we were talking about the you know how slavery ties into the narrative here when they uh, first meet up with uh, the um, Dutch colonizers here there's kind of this air of of paranoia from the Dutch side that Mason and Dixon are are here not to observe any kind of astronomical Instances, but more so to essentially steal their slaves. Um, and I, I have to, ima- like, I don't know, I don't remember it getting into too much about their reaction to that attitude. Um, but I'm curious how they would have reacted to that. I don't, I don't recall that it really goes into that. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but it, it, it did make me think about how they would have reacted to it.
1: I think we're just supposed to take uh, Mason's kind of general affront to the insinuation as is in, as indicative that they just hadn't ever considered it—that there's no way in hell that they're somehow spies or operatives.
0: That's true, because yeah, he does say right after, right after that interaction, that they're—you know—we're we're here to do this, and that's it.
3: I think that more so, a lot of the paranoia from this chapter comes from. The character that both that bookends both the beginning and ending of these chapters, where you have this person who works for what is essentially a rival company, not only welcoming them there, not harassing them, letting them go about their work, but then at the end of it, Bonk tells them, you know, go ahead and put in a good word for me in London, making this allusion to to an idea that there's a desk somewhere, and the point. That they they come back to him and say, "I don't know how we would find that, or I don't know of any such desk." He's just so certain that there is one, and that there is somewhere where he is, for whatever reason, going to be rewarded by the the Royal Society in particular. It speaks to this idea that there's something going on behind the scenes that that is setting them up on this journey, or at least giving them a scaffolding to to carry along. And going back to the first five chapters, you have the origins of a lot of that paranoia and them not being able to understand why they're even still alive and why things are happening the way that they are. And so I think it's more fuel to the fire of this idea of, is this predestination in a religious sense, or is there some sort of governmental institution pulling the strings to put them in these places and do these things? And that really gets to the heart of the two characters themselves having preconceived notions about religion, having preconceived notions about destiny and trying to put that together themselves. And I think it's, I think it's there in particular Bonk and, and what he says at the end to create that push pull between is this something divine or is this just something about the, the capital T they, that has the ability to, to reach beyond what they should to put us in these places and and do these things. I think it's there to, to continue to kind of, create that that paradigm for the reader to to fall on either end of as far as what they're thinking about
0: yeah and it comes up too uh on on page 73 there's kind of a back and forth between mason and dixon about that whole idea of like how they got put together and and whether one person is being manipulated you know and and trying to kind of get something out of the other one from whatever the you know the powers that be that you know as you mentioned the, the capital t they um and that was something that I, I noted um, in here, was that, that whole exchange between them. It's a pretty long one, um, where it, it starts with the line, uh, I'm not a fucking Jesuit mason. If Jesuits are manipula- manipulating me, then we are two punches in a droll-boothed friend, uh, for as certainly as it would be the East India Company who keep thee ever in motion. And that kind of goes, that sets off this whole dialogue between the two of them about you know whether or not they have been inserted into the other's life to kind of propel them into whatever it is they're heading towards.
1: Yeah, and that, that, um, I am not a fucking Jesuit Mason is one of the, if you ask me one of the best lines of the, the first, you know, hundred pages of the book, just because what more does he need to say? You know, he can't prove it either way. And, uh, you know, it's, it keeps coming up and it's not going to stop coming up. Sorry, minor spoilers yeah
0: um, no there, there's there's a that early on there's such a level of exasperation already in that response
1: yeah because he's he's been incredibly polite to this really b- b- bit of a troll of a man he's working with <laughs> he, he's been so polite this whole time and it this it, it's not you know any of the the ridiculing of his of his hometown or home county it's not any of the you know the mockery of his Uh, occupation or his religion it's this it's the insinuation that he is somehow a jesuit spy that gets him really upset and in a way that kind of shows that you know he keeps it to himself a lot more than mason does but clearly he's pretty disturbed by all of this
3: right to the point where that that might just explain it (laughs) if this guide happens to be a spy for the jesuits maybe that'll finally make all of this make sense which to your point,
0: why would he tell him? <laughs> right. Well, and so that's, let, let's kind of talk about that for a minute. Cause this, this chapter also, or the chapter, this, this whole section that we read is kind of the beginnings of these, these little bickering arguments between the two of them, uh, where they're kind of uh, really harping on each other for various things. Uh, a lot of times about their respective positions, um, which, are some of, I think, my favorite parts of the, the dialogues between them at this point. Um, it, it really provides, uh, not just insight into them as characters, but it's also pretty funny, just watching them kind of jibe each other back and forth um, and try to kind of needle each other as much as they can. But it never gets uh, hostile to the point of you know, them you know, fighting physically with each other. It's just always these little barbs back and forth.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Which is, again, why we, I think we've mentioned it probably every time we've mentioned the book about its like, its warmth, but it's a very, it's a very accurate representation of how friends in real life talk to one another. You know, once you get comfortable with somebody, maybe these, these, at first, these comments or these like sarcastic remarks or barbs that you're throwing out might have some motivation of, of being upset or annoyed out of them. But at a time, after a time of actually knowing each other and, and spending a good amount of time around one another, it becomes just sort of a natural course of how you become friends with somebody and how you remain friends with somebody. It's very it's very great to see that represented so accurately on the page, because as a writer, it can become very easy to see dialogue as just a, a means of conveying information about the narrative that you're putting forth and to not attempt some sort of resemblance of reality in how in how people talk to one another. But Pinchon is managing to strike the the balance of both, and that you know th- there are these in these jokes about being a Jesuit or about uh, this thing about being a Quaker or that thing about you know where someone comes from. It's it is still conveying information, but he's also delivering that information away. That's that's deepening uh, the, the connection between the characters and also the connection between the the reader and the material because they're more easily able to identify with that kind of sort of jocularity.
0: Yeah, and one of my f- favorite examples of that is on on page eighty five when they're, um, they're they they go back and forth at each other. It's it. There's just these two lines here. Um going pretend to be an astronomer," Dixon says. "All I need to know, I can teach thee in five minutes. Surveying won't take even that long," says Snaps Mason. Uh, "Piss runneth downhill, downhill, and payday is Saturday. Now you're a qualified fence runner." I. That's what, that was one of those lines where I had to, I just stopped to, to just laugh because yeah. I've, I have experienced that kind of back and forth with, you know, my own friends, but uh, it's also, I, I worked construction for a little while, um, and that was something that you would see is, you know, this kind of bickering back and forth between specific, um, um, professions or specialties you know where like the electrical guys and the plumbers would kind of go back and forth at each other about how easy it is to do the other person's job so you know having that kind of moment in here or moments because there's more than just that one it, it was always such a nice little reprieve
3: yeah or in i think it's the, the exact same scene where cherry co comes and speaks to them the way that he he makes jokes about the mango being a transubstantiated piece of Christ. In, yeah. In making allusions to to like flesh sacrifice and everything, which as a as a, a reverend will say in, in inverted commas, is another part of that too. Of just you know we we have the ability to to joke with one another about our industries or where we come from, and doing so helps cut the tension of of being around such you know strange people or strangers rather that you're you're coming over on a boat with.
1: In that same scene i really do love the way that uh it's just it's it hasn't been discussed but it's made suddenly clear that oh yeah mason and dixon just like everyone else that uh, other than the children as far as we can tell really don't like wick's cherry coke he's just kind of a pest to them (laughs) you know he shows up and and they're you know he's he's just wanting to share a mango with, you know, his his traveling buddies and their immediate response is, "Oh god, I thought he'd left. What yeah. the hell?" <laughs> and of course, you know, like like Pinchin himself, he doesn't care what people think. He just uh, insists on chattering away regardless.
0: Yep. <laughs> well, okay, since we brought up the mango, let's um let's talk about the food in in this little section because as with other pinch on works uh specifically gravity's rainbow but uh, in other ones you know food plays a lot of different roles in in these stories um this one it's ketchup and the the whole idea of making i don't want to say so much because you know this is a a huge book but uh, there's a lot of parts of just these five chapters where ketchup plays a significant role um in in the events that happen here and there um and led to some of the arguably the funniest parts of this whole uh five chapters
3: yeah absolutely the the scene where he uses it for the first time and they specifically and ins- he specifically is complaining about it how it won't come out of the bottle. And then yeah. someone goes well you have to you have to invert it and then you have to hit the bottom side of it and then it'll come out easily. Like as far as I'm aware, ketchup wasn't invented until like the early to mid eighteen hundreds. Um, so the deliberate anachronism there of not just ketchup itself existing, but of a very Modern design and modern problem that that probably everybody listening to this podcast has has dealt with or, or heard of. Um, yeah, is very funny.
2: <laughs> yeah, that was that was maybe my favorite sexual innuendo of this section.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, Luke is, is 100% I'm on the same page. It that was the part where I I was almost in tears. I totally forgotten about that scene from the first time I read it. And it's that's kind of what I was referring to earlier about the that very sitcom moment where there's because there's you know I don't remember who said it specifically you know strike her upon the bottom uh, O's oh, L's um, and then Dixon just like stops in his tracks kind of looks around the table to take uh, you know take everything into ca- account you know given Mason's you know run-ins with all the girls so far and everything and the the way that whole scene is written is absolutely perfect and is just so funny yeah
1: I, I think ketchup is one of those things that kind of like uh bananas in gravity's rainbow where it can mm-hmm. it, you know y- you can attach a bunch of symbolism to it uh, from its provenance to its you know properties to it's just you know purposes in the kitchen i guess um with cat ke- with ketchup you know it's it's a it's Spicy mix of fruit and mushrooms and various other things and it's from Malaysia and Indonesia and at the same time nowadays it's almost entirely at least in uh, the narrow view of uh, Western pop culture associated with uh, low-class US and UK foods hmm and that is Uh, super resonant alongside the, you know, the other themes of internationalization.
0: Um, Okay, let's... What else did I want to bring up here? Oh, okay. I want to kind of cover the... Sort of, you know, to kind of bridge from the food topic to other recurring elements of of Pinchon's work. Um, I, I may be wrong here, but the... The use or reference to B-flat major, that, I, I feel like a lot of the the times that there's a song mentioned or someone's, you know, whistling a tune or whatever the case is, I feel like a lot of times the the key of whatever piece is being referenced is, is B-flat major. And I tried to do some research on, on that to see if there's any kind of like thematic element to that or reason that that would be. Um, and maybe I'm just imagining and, and inserting that specific key into other instances where he mentions the key of, of whatever songs are in there. But I couldn't find anything about B-flat major itself having anything particularly of note that would, you know, cause it to be used so often. Am I, have y'all caught that before? Am I, am I just kind of pulling that out of nowhere?
3: I, I can't necessarily
0: um, bring up whether or not it's it's mentioned a lot
3: in other books. I can't recall at this particular time. But I know that if you go back to historical composition and what a lot of classical composers looked at, the different like usages for major keys and minor keys, um, there are different sort of guidebooks from the 1700s the and 1800s written by composers as far as like instructional manuals or just writing down their impressions of it. And I know that if you're looking at, I don't remember who exactly said it now, sadly, but there's a quote about B flat major that, that says it's because of the fact that it's, it's like an open, fairly clear, like bright tonal key to play music in. Um, it's oftentimes associated with the, the expression of like quiet contemplation or quiet thinking um it was uh, ernst powler who said who, or power who said that actually now that i now that i recall so that that's from a thematic perspective what certain historical composers or classical composers have come up with for for b flat major which i mean does fit a lot of what's going on in these in these chapters and to a certain degree a lot of pinchon's work where it, it requires characters and the reader to To sit down for for quiet contemplation to think about what's happening in in the book and to try and break it down, sort it out, discover what he's he's getting at so from a thematic perspective, that's what he could be working with you know I don't know if there if there's a specific intent there based on that historical quote or you know if Pinchon just just knew that that was often what the key was used for, but that's that's what I know from a a music theory perspective on it
0: it might be. It I might just be thinking about against the day I I think maybe that came up that key came up a few times in against the day. Um, which which kind of brings me to the next little recurring thing that I want to bring up and I, and I I need to I think stress that it's I think generally accepted that this book was being written at the same time that against the day was during that long stretch between uh, gravity's rainbow and the release of mason and dixon. So there's a lot of interconnectedness of little bits here and there. Um, and something that I picked up on, and I, I tried to get this to, to find something concrete that I could absolutely say this is the case. The, uh, the diminutive three-stringed lute that's mentioned on page 80 and then uh, mentioned again on the next page as being a Fiji Islander's guitar. It sounds a lot like a ukulele. I couldn't think of anything else that it could be, but it would be one of those another, another anachronism where because the, the ukulele wasn't invented until I think the 1800s. Um, but that one, the ukulele comes into play in, uh, in Against the Day again. Um, I don't remember which of the characters, which of the chums of chance played it. Um, the name is just escaping me right now, but that, I know that instrument specifically comes up again uh, in Against the Day. But I thought that was interesting um that specific instrument and kind of tying the the use of it um into this book
1: well, th- thinking over uh more on the b-flat major discussion i suppose uh it it is a it is a scale that's really i mean it you know quiet contemplation is a good way to put it but it is very much associated with these kind of romantic period pieces in modern day cinema it's the kind of thing that would be playing in the background of a movie or TV show set in this period. Uh, and it, and I honestly, I think anything else would might come across as a little anachronistic to, you know, just you know film language. But it does, and I, it may just be that you suggested it, and so my brain is assuming you're correct. But I do think you're right. I do think B-flat major is mentioned in... At least one of the other books. I'm not sure what, though.
0: Yeah, and I, I, I tried to, to use the, the Pinchon Wiki to find any other references to it, but there wasn't... I, I couldn't find anything. And I'm not... I don't want to... I, I'm almost positive it's in Against the Day. Um, but I don't want to skim through 1,085 pages trying to find one little obscure... Um, thing like that. It It just came to mind. Just the the interconnectedness between Mason and Dixon and, and Against the Day and the little things that pop up uh, in both of the books. Um, the other one that I was going to mention being um, the coffee enema that was used to uh, attempt to awaken the unwakeable sailor. Um, which was among the many things that was tried. But I do remember specifically, and and the Pinch on Wiki also mentions that that specific um idea also having been used in Against the Day. Um which I, I also was wondering and, and again I may be way off base here, but the that unwakeable sailor that they mention in in here, I don't remember which chapter it was specifically. I forgot to write down the page, but um wasn't was there someone like that in V as well? I feel like there was another character that that had a similar um characteristic of of being unable to be woken up for their watch duty.
1: Uh Fender or not Fender, a pig Bodine was definitely like off a wall. So that right. might be it. But I'm not I don't I'm not sure if there was a, a person who was asleep trying to slack off.
0: That may be I may just be projecting that onto Bodine.
3: Kind of backtracking a bit to the, the conversation about um not just the the mango but the the religious elements of the of the book what did we all think of Ethelmer's quote um about history as a a dance for our, our hunt for Christ as well as the the epigraph that we get from from one of Cherry Coke's unpublished sermons Did we have any thoughts on that
2: Yeah I, well, one thing I found interesting about that that I'm not 100% is what Pinchin would have intended is um even today, um, people struggle with uh, finding like actual historical documents other than the Bible or any historical record of of Jesus having been alive from like like contemporary to when he was alive. Um, so, in, and in the seventeen hundreds, you know that would have been any, that would have been nearly impossible for them to for them to have any real knowledge or or, or documents or like inscriptions on a wall or anything. You know, like, there's very little. Actual uh, historical evidence that Jesus uh, was alive, like in everything uh, beyond, you know, the the Bible itself.
3: Yeah, kind of, kind of building off of that idea, Luke. I think if that's what Pinchon is going for with with the inclusion of that question as as history is sort of a uh, a hunt for Christ. If it's if it's meant to be a search for the the literal historical figure of of Jesus, then I think it could support the ideas that we're looking at for the book as a whole of of who gets to tell history what is accurate in history what are we searching for um there's a lot of very interesting elements of religion across this whole book more so than a lot of pinchons other work but i think that could be certainly part of what he's looking at um i i think it could also have something to do with with redemption this idea that that a search for christ from a religious perspective is a search for redemption of yourself or a redemption of history and certainly you could say that that applies to to mason at least that he's looking for for some kind of redemption for himself um after the death of his wife
1: yeah and this this, we have to remember this this book was written you know the mid 90s probably is when the finishing touches were being put on and it's that's around the period when people like uh, dawkins were in the news quite a bit, making uh, very broad and, uh, I'll, I'll call them slightly disrespectful statements about religion, and it, it seems like, while it's a, it, absolutely everything that Ethelmer is saying is, you know, arguably true, and a, a valid interpretation of things, it's also uh, maybe a, just a way of Finchen kind of lampooning probably an attitude that he had when he was younger regarding religion and lampooning many opinions that he sees popular at the time among, you know, the college student who left the small town to go to the big city and expanded his horizons.
0: Yeah. And I, I mean, that's kind of, I think, evident in the reaction to what, uh, Ethelmore says, what, "What Mr. Sparks' reaction about, you know, save that for your next discussion with others of comparable wisdom. In this house, we are simple folk and must labor to find much amusement and jokes about the Savior. Um, I, I can definitely see it being a sort of, you know, Pension's own own view, or, or Ethelmore maybe being kind of a a Dawkins or, or Hitchens-esque um, sort of insert, because yeah, they both were, were big at that time, and, and I mean, maybe not at the peak of their of their popularity necessarily, but certainly rising in that, and bringing a lot of those, you know, challenges to to Christianity.
1: Yeah, and and notable is that, you know, not only is Ethelmer very constantly concerned about offending his reverend, uh, what second uncle or whatever, however that lines up, um, but he's he's also. Like no one, sorry, not no one. Uh, Cherry Coke isn't ever the one who gets upset with him. It's always the other family members, trying to protect their own conception of the world, and Cherry Coke, you know, regardless of whether he is a real or a fake reverend, is clearly the kind of reverend who doesn't take offense at that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, it it kind of makes me wonder if it's not so much that he's, you know. Pretending to be a reverend, maybe more so that he's, um, over the years started to kind of question his own his own beliefs and his own faith, and just kind of is keeping up appearances for the time being. Um, I mean, there's certainly instances of that. There's a, um, I'm trying to think of his name. Dan Dan Barker. Um, around the same time as as Hitchens and Dawkins and and Sam Harris and a lot of those guys. He was a, a former pastor who, um, over time, ended up losing his faith and, and writing about it and, and sharing his experience and debunking a lot of Christian ideology as a result of doing that. And that's, he's kind of the person that I've, I've been thinking of um, when Cherry Coke is, is having those kind of interactions and just kind of sitting back and letting those things be said and not trying to actively shut anything down. It's just kind of like, yeah, all right, well, I'm not going to argue with you.
1: Yeah, I definitely don't take those, those uh, I guess, uncontested proddings as a, as an indication that he's not a, a real reverend. That's that's just based on the fact that, you know, the opening chapter, he mentions his, his being a reverend as a parsonical disguise. Yeah. That's all.
3: Not to mention the fact that his epigraph that begins chapter 10 seems to be an attempt to square science and the natural world with the existence of a god. Which is not necessarily something that that, that a in reverend would would feel the need to do um, to to bridge those two gaps, especially not at the time. That's very common for Christian apologetics now. but mm-hmm. when you look back at, at historically what the the large institutions of churches did at the time, they, they were not friendly towards signs, nor were they no. nor were they trying to find a way to <laughs> to square the realities of the two together
1: well we know that we know that if he if he is a true blue reverend of any sort he's definitely one held as heretical by the anglican church um and it i don't know he yes it's it's definitely not a popular opinion in terms of uh the clergy at that in the in the 1700s but you know it, it was a post spinoza world not in, not terribly out of out of the question that he would have had these opinions if he was a true blue christian even if you believe that Spinoza wasn't a christian
3: yeah true i mean there could also be something there about pinchon's own ancestry given that you know cherry coke operating as a as a stand-in for for pinchon and and pinchon's own relative having published a uh a, a biblical tract that that got widely banned and was he was called a heretic by the puritans
2: Another possible uh, interpretation of the quote about history being a search for Christ or whatever is it could it could be um this just occurred to me, but like a search for like the like stuff like the Fibonacci sequence, you know like evidence of, of God intervening in the world um if that makes sense, you know like evidence that there is a greater design and um i don't I don't know if that makes sense or not, but yeah.
3: Which, to your point, Luke, I think you're the one who brought this up last week. Um, Deism is is dropped by name in these chapters
0: too, Mm -hmm. so that made me think. um, I wanted to get y'all's thought on this. There's so kind of going into the whole idea of the science and religion um, aspect of this. There's a a brief mention on page ninety eight about it. Just starts the paragraph starts. Dixon remembers the tale. Emerson loved to tell of Galileo before the cardinals. I'm Unless I'm missing an earlier character, excuse me, an earlier character named Emerson. I'm wondering if that was a a reference to um, Ralph Waldo Emerson, but I couldn't find anything where he specifically was talking about Galileo and his sort of everything that happened to him with the church after the whole heliocentrism. I want to call it debacle when he basically understood how the the solar system worked and the church refused to believe it. Um, House arrest. Yeah, yeah, that's a kind way of putting it. (laughs) Yeah. Um but I I I yeah, I couldn't find anything that specifically tied um Ralph Waldo Anderson Emerson to that name, but I also don't recall previously unless I missed it there being a character named Emerson that we were supposed to attribute that quote to or that story to.
3: So there I did actually look this up uh, after reading through the 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 notes and Ralph Waldo Emerson does have a quote in Self-Reliance and Other Essays.
0: Yeah. Um, i looked at that. I couldn't find anything directly in there, though. I guess I must have just absolutely missed it.
3: Well, he he mentions a bunch of people where he says, misunderstood, it is a right fool's word. It is so bad then to be misunderstood. Pythagoras was misunderstood. Socrates Mm -hmm. and Jesus and Luther and Copernicus and Galileo and Newton and every pure and wise spirit that ever took flesh to be great is to be misunderstood. So there's nothing specific about galileo before the cardinals but he is name dropped in that particular quote
0: okay because see that's i think that's where i fell in in looking for it i was i was searching for a specific story that he had regarding galileo so yeah I, i overlooked that completely
1: so um the the emerson in question is his you know tutor uh explicitly um and it's actually william emerson he was a mathematician and a mystic And part of the, I think he actually, to some extent might have influenced the very early forms of like mesmerism and animal magnetism that Ralph Waldo Emerson would later, uh, I might be wrong about that. So, uh, but he, you know, he's mostly known and remembered as a physician and optician and mathematician, but he was, he was a pretty zany dude and he does appear later in the book, um, in the narrative, so anyone who's curious about kind of the flavor of his forms of mysticism, Pynchon does get into that uh, And, and in re- it, just to be clear, in real life he was uh, Jeremiah Dixon's tutor.
0: Okay, that's good to know.
1: I really do love that that section where Dixon is sitting there um, looking at the, looking at Venus, traverse the sun and Having a moment of transcendent unity with his predecessor, um, his his predecessor Quakers and other heretics.
0: Well, yeah, and I I liked the whole, that whole part with the, the, the transit. And I, I I really enjoyed how he, he Pinchon talks about how it affected, uh, everyone who observed it, you know, how, um, Everyone walked was like basically in a stupor for the next couple of days, um, and how impactful something like that was and it it kind of um, it it, it kind of i think really hammers home the the difference or the 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 kind of i don't know how to i guess the desensitization that we've we've had towards science as as we've achieved higher and greater technology we've kind of become, I don't want to say bored, but I think a lot of the general population just isn't as awed by science as they used to be. Like, this this is, you know, a prime example of that time where something as uh, what I think a lot of people now would consider just, you know, a boring event of, you know, watching Venus cross over the, the sun you know, back then was a huge thing. Like no one had ever witnessed anything like that before. And it had such a profound impact on people that it lasted for days. And nowadays the same situation and you know, we have solar eclipses that happen, you know, periodically and, and people watch it. And then it's, you know, once it's over, it's just, okay, back to doing whatever we were doing.
1: Yeah. And in a sense that kind of encapsulates the, the dichotomy of pre and post modernity, the, uh, this, this book, uh, discusses, you know, you you have, yeah, back then, you know, oh my gosh, people predicted that Venus, this, this heavenly object, is going to cross over the face of this other heavenly object, and they predicted exactly when it's going to do that, they predicted how it's going to do it, They're, they predicted when and where will be best to observe that happening, and nowadays, it's... It's become so de to have that That prediction that predictability that it has it has gone from a sign of human ingenuity and power to evidence of our own uh, limited agency as members of just as just another number just another person on the street just one of many and back then they still had enough of that that mystical worldview to find the ability to capture any of the chaos around them in a reliable manner as as more magic rather than something demystifying.
2: I think uh, this is maybe a bit of a spoiler. I don't, it's kind of a story within the story later on in this book, but the the story of the two Chinese astronomers, um, I think in it's in the pages of like late 500s, early 600s in this book it does kind of depict what you're talking about, where um, being able to predict stuff like uh, an eclipse would um, give a ruler or a businessman or anyone important um, a certain like kind of leg up and uh, an, an advantage over others, um, which is interesting to think about in, 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 in the context of them watching the transit of Venus and everyone being so astounded, because you would think that it might kind of help Mason and Dixon's social status in Cape Town or something. And that maybe that maybe they're only so into the transit of Venus because they have these two astronomers there.
0: It's um I, I just absolutely lost my train of thought on that. Um Yeah, you know, it's interesting how they the event itself is is perceived and reacted to with so much awe and and wonder, but the two Astronomers, well, astronomer and... and um, now I can't think of Dixon's technical surveyor. Title. Surveyor, thank you. Um, are just, you know, no one really cares. They're, they're just people who are there and, you know, whatever. But um, I, I think that's something that kind of comes up in... Not necessarily all of, of Pinchon's work, but I, definitely I'm thinking, you know, Gravity's Rainbow and this and Against the Day, of how just absolutely awe inspiring science can be in, in different forms. You know, physics, astronomy, um, mathematics. It's it can be this wondrous thing and it was for a a long time this absolutely um awe inspiring thing. And I, I think I don't want to say people are, are no longer interested in it, but I think that the 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 way that people are interested in it has certainly waned. Over the years, as we've become more comfortable with technology and 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 used to technology, we haven't had that those kind of major shifts that they have that they had in this time, or even at the turn of the the 20th century you know where against the day takes place and and you know moving into electricity and um the the things that that can bring the new inventions that that can bring and I think that you know it's it's interesting and and fun to read an author who is clearly still enamored with science um, because of the way he writes about it. I think there's such a passion when he's talking about these scientific theories and, and these different areas of science that it runs through all of these works that really you don't see too often anymore. I, I think a lot of the, the kind of other authors that talk about science it tends to be more technology focused and just, you know, how cool is this, this specific technology, but not really exploring the, the history or the ideas behind how that science works, whether or not the reader understands it. there's so much of the math and, and science and gravity's rainbow. That is absolutely over my head, but to just read how passionate he is to write about it is almost awe inspiring in itself.
3: I, well, I think the other interesting thing, and, and, us kind of talking about not only how inspiring these things can be depending upon who you are, not only now but back in the days contemporary to to when this history was happening, is this this idea that you can either give yourself over to that reality and think about what it means that this is one planet in in a vast cosmos, or you can just completely you know ignore it that and, and what that may mean for you if you do because. At the end of chapter nine, when the, you know, when the when Mason and Dixon are actually like setting up their equipment, there's an interesting set of quotes that I was reminded of, where it says the girls are taken on a short but dizzying journey straight up into the ether, until there beside them in the grayish starlight is the ancient gravid Earth. Fescue become a witless wand of light, striking upon it brilliantly white hot arcs, and at the very end of that chapter like literally you know a paragraph and a half later it says the girls keep their glances each looping around the others like elaborately curled tresses trying to see if they should be understanding this or being cruel young beauties everyone even caring this i think it's this idea that there's there's like a a personal onus on you to to not just care but also what that care will end up meaning for you and and for your experience in life and your worldview, if you if you choose to actually care about it, and I think it's interesting that you have these these two surveyors who are not necessarily colonizers. They come from a, a nation that is colonizing, but they themselves aren't involved in that project and are religious and kind of look at these things as just part of their job. But then you have these these children who are certainly beneficiaries of col- of colonialism and are actively sort of a part of the society that is oppressing the people and they have no idea what to do with that information you know they they could care in which case maybe the observer effect which that earlier quotation i read out really was what i was reminded of that once you kind of get outside of your locality and you kind of look at the earth from from space you have this grand revelation that the 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 petty squabbling on earth is pointless and that you know compared to the the vastness of everything else the things we get upset about and the things we do to one another are really sort of petty and and wrong you could end up with something like that or you could end up in a case where it it changes nothing for you and it's all about what locus you choose to to view history and and, and view the world around you and the events that are happening through so i think it's i think it's interesting that that pinchon is doing that during a time when you know by all logical estimation these things should have been really impactful but are 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 potentially not
0: yeah and i I, th- I think that's why it's i i'm happy that it came up in in that part the idea of the the parallax um which plays heavily in this and uh also uh and against the day um with you know as it, a scientific theory um, you know, the, the displacement of, of objects depending on the, on the viewpoint, but also in, you know, just in people's lives and in our perception of, of the world, how things can appear different depending on your, your specific viewpoint. You know, Mason and Dixon are indicative of that. You have these two different people looking at things from a different perspective and how it shapes, you know, everything that, you know, like we mentioned earlier, how it shapes everything that comes, you know, for them and between them.
1: Yeah, and, and no matter how different they are, they still come, they still meet together to appreciate. Oh, hey, we're going to watch Venus cross the sun. And, you know, with Mason it might be slightly more scientific, and with Dixon it might be slightly more religious, or uh, however you want to frame his worldview. But either way, they both find this this similar ground, whereas these girls, who just a chapter prior, have been described as essentially um, another layer of acquiescence among the the tools of control of the Dutch East India Company Um, just have no means or at least no 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 apparent reason to themselves to engage with this science and I find it interesting that it goes from the girls and Ostra at the beginning of the scene to just the girls. And I do wonder if Ostra is supposed to be included in the later uh, mention of the girls, or if she is supposed to be conspicuously absent from the language itself.
3: I was wondering if anyone else potentially thought, given the fact that I had brought up the the Clinton joke that exists in in chapters 1 through 5, um at the beginning of of this chunk of chapters there is a reference to the fact that that Camped, captain grant has chosen to to start occasionally feigning insanity as an effort to potentially dissuade future uh, incursions happening on his vessel i was wondering if anyone else potentially thought that was a joke about nixon and specifically the the madman style of foreign policy or by by feigning yourself to be this potentially insane irresponsible or, or or wild man that you can you can uh shove off potential conflict or, or interdiction on your own country
0: i i definitely didn't make that connection at the time but i absolutely can make that connection now and especially with it being Pinchon, it 100 percent clocks um it's i i had taken i wrote that particular scene down just because i thought it was interesting that you had grant Essentially doing that to keep people away from him And Mason doing it to keep himself away from other people um, mm-hmm. But now I have that in my mind And I, I, I really like that, that connection
1: Yeah, I, I hadn't thought about Nixon really at all But I'm going through Moby Dick At the same time as we're reading this And it definitely reminded me of some of the little tactics Ahab uses To keep order on his ship Because he's not quite as deranged As he makes himself out to be in that book
3: yeah what it made me think about it was just the fact that he starts doing this after he's attacked by a foreign vessel and the fact that it was popularly used for the foreign policy in particular of the of the Nixon administration
0: I wouldn't be surprised if that was the intent behind it, especially given the time that this was being written and if you know if Vineland was being written around the same time um that would absolutely make sense that he would insert something like that.
3: I mean, we know he's made at least one other Nixon joke with the, the opening of the section of Gravity's Rainbow. Section four. Yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah there is some evidence of uh, Pynchon working on Mason and Dixon during the Nixon years. I want to say he, uh, in the mid-70s, he, like, walked the Mason and Dixon line um, and other stuff like that. So, it, it you know, he had been working on this book since around that time.
0: Let's, I want to kind of, I guess, close up unless anybody else had anything they wanted to bring up before we do uh before we do quotes but i wanted to kind of give a little bit of time to the the humor uh that is just all over these these five chapters um did y'all have was there any particular scene or or line um that that you found was just like the, the funniest part of of all of this so far
2: I really I forget what page it's on, but the the imagery of of Mason struggling to keep up with Dixon when they go out drinking and Mason continuously like falling asleep in his food and um <laughs> you know just kind of struggling the whole time, uh, I found that pretty funny
1: yeah for me it's it's got to be it's a, it's a tight tight race, i suppose, between the scenes of Mason throwing himself off of balconies and like trying to sneak up ladders to avoid <laughs> talking to people. Yeah, uh, yeah that part's hilarious. It, it's it's between that and the, the introduction of a recurring joke of each of the men basically measuring how fat they're getting in terms yeah. of how <laughs> broad the circumference of their bellies are and
0: yeah. like,
1: in particular mention of how well they can see their own penises. Because the it, arc
0: of their stomach.
1: Yeah, because it's yeah. just entirely, I mean, it's entirely fluff. It it doesn't need to be in the book. It doesn't really indicate very much about anything else going on. It doesn't correlate with much. But it is just hilarious to have these characters constantly thinking of themselves in planetary terms.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the the funniest part to me, and, and probably what I would point out as as the most pinch on part of the chapter too, is is just this this sailor who is impossible to arouse from sleep yeah and it, not so much that as a concept because i'm sure that there are plenty of, of of sailors over the the course of history who have pretended to be asleep to avoid watch duty or whatever they may have to do but the the absurd lengths to which the rest of the crew go to try and wake him up
0: not just unsuccessfully from, too.
3: Yeah, like it literally never works from from the the coffee enema to lowering him against the water to where <laughs> his his bed is like literally the bottom half of it is touching the water and it, it describes him as just rolling over and making like a snuggling position to them putting stuff in his toes to try and wake him up. Like the, the, the
0: long matches, yeah.
3: Yeah, it, it's just such a kind of um Looney Tunes esque series of of attempts to to wake this guy up that i think is is undeniably um pinch on and well and not the, only
0: that it's also that he's a very good watchman when he's awake
3: yeah yeah <laughs>
0: yeah and and you have to
3: specifically trick him into doing somebody else's duty <laughs> it, it, it can't be what's assigned to him you have to tell him oh i need you to do this for this other person and then suddenly he becomes the the greatest sailor anyone's ever seen
0: <laughs> oh my god i uh um i think for me i i already mentioned the whole thing with the ketchup bottle and and that just unbelievably hilarious exchange the other part for me was um there's a brief a brief part where basically um after all of the women in the house in Cornelius's house have basically thrown themselves at at Mason essentially like he's in this situ- this like odysseus and the sirens kind of situation where he's just doing everything in his power to not be tempted by any of these girls that are doing everything in their power to just come on to him in every possible way um but eventually it there's this whole paragraph describing how uncomfortable Mason is, but it, it, he just can't do anything about it, and has an, like an obvious erection. And it after this whole paragraph describing that, there's just a sentence. Dixon does his best not to mention it, waiting rather for Mason to either brag or to complain. And I, oh my, I just I loved that. Just all that build up to it. What's essentially just a, a boner joke, is hilarious to me
2: yeah the building off on that like the part where mason is in the uh is in his room with the uh, housewife and the and the husband's away you know the he and then the daughter comes in and he just like jumps out the window is also pretty funny um yeah
0: i and also like... The, like the daughter was like what are you doing here well, what are you doing here <laughs>
2: yeah i also but, like but the part i like they they don't they assume that the telescopes have been used for like some type of like inappropriate in a, in in an inappropriate manner isn't that in this part like it's some it's something about like you know like they don't know like or like the house swipe or something implies that they've been doing something like inappropriate with the with the telescopes.
0: I think so. I'm trying I to remember it's
2: yet or greet. I didn't necessarily understand what that was implying. I mean. I don't I don't necessarily want to get into like the the, the sordid details of of that stuff, but I, I didn't enjoy that. That was the implication of that.
0: Maybe that they were just being like peeping toms or something.
2: Yeah. Um and also like the all the stuff with the women coming on the Mason, I like that stuff a lot, but it does kind of take a very dark turn with the them kinda turning him on just so he'll have sex with a slave. Um it would be a lot more and this isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it'd be a lot more funny. And a lot less dark if it was just them coming onto him and not them trying to like do some weird eugenics program,
0: yeah, yeah I mean that's that's definitely a pinch on thing though is that weaving the that dark humor into those kind of situations the the slapstick and the dark humor, yeah, um, it does
2: kind of remind me of uh Chicharin from gravity's Rainbow, who's like half black half white
1: mm-hmm. yeah i i I particularly like the the moment where um Dixon is just tired of Mason's kind of, you know, quiescence in response to slavery and oppression. And he says, uh, I wish I knew where my affection for you runs. One moment is sure as the heart yarn of a mainstay. The next I am entertaining cheerfully projects in which your dissolution is ever a few feature. And that's just a really, a really lovely, way that's like that's that's exactly the way like you mentioned earlier kate um how people talk to people that they're starting to really love it Mm -hmm. it, it is that you know i don't know why i don't hate you man
0: yeah you know it really is it, it does absolutely speak to their um their relationship and how um close they're becoming um, I would be remiss if I didn't also mention um the the Higgs boson joke that's in here. um I almost didn't catch it. I had the the pinch on wiki open while I was reading, and I happened to catch that they that they had mentioned that, but um, it absolutely makes sense that he would throw something in there about Mr. Higgs's obsessiveness is to loose ends and how the with the discovery of the Higgs boson, which I believe was pretty close to the time that the book was released. Um, essentially to, you know, I don't want to go off on a long diatribe about the Higgs boson, which I barely know anything about, um, but the understanding that it, it tied together all these different scientific ideas, um, just, it's such a nerdy little joke that I, I think um, should be brought up. Oh, and the, the, the mention of, of the spotted dick in getting in someone's nose, funny, but also very viscerally It made me scream or squirm a little bit. Just the idea of having like just I don't uh, yeah, just the idea of even thinking about it is disgusting. Um, Well, let's go ahead and jump into quotes. Um, Anybody want to start there?
2: Uh, So my favorite was the one about uh, dreams from pages seventy and seventy-one. Let me. Let me look at where it starts. Um, okay, okay. So he wakes up screaming repeatedly. At length, Ostra, expressing the will of both houses, sends him to talk with a certain Toko, a Negrito, or Asian pygmy of a Malay tribe called the Senoi. It is their belief that the world they inhabit in their dreams is as real as their waking one. At breakfast each morning, families sit and report their dreams to one another, offering advice and opinions past as if all the fantastical beings in events are but be but other villagers and village gossip. And then Mason says they live their dreams whilst we deny everything we may witness during that third of our precious span allotted, as if sleep be too much like death to advert to for long. Um I recently have read Ursula K. Le Guin's The Lathe of Heaven. And then I also just the last and last week or two, I read Le Guin's The word for world is forest and uh, both those books feature uh, a lot of like dreaming and a lot of stuff about how dreaming can affect someone's waking life and the world around them and stuff, especially Lathe of Heaven, because in Lathe of Heaven, the main character uh, dreams stuff. And uh, depending on what he dreams, it changes, you know, it's like it's basically creates like this weird multiverse where he'll dream that like aliens have come and then he'll wake up and he's living in a world ruled by an on an earth ruled by aliens. Um, and I don't know. I don't, I, I just, I really enjoy um dream sequences in general and discussion of dreams. It also uh, reminds me a little bit of, uh, I guess there was a, a Russian family that was living in Siberia uh, that for basically their whole lives, a large part of their lives, they were totally shut off from civilization. And I guess um, you know, this was for like decades and decades of their lives. And I think that I want to say that they entertained themselves by discussing their dreams uh, every morning. That that was um, their like little story time. That's what they talked about at mealtime was what dreams they'd had the night before. Um, I don't know. I, I personally can sometimes in my writing my creative writing include a little bit too much of kind of random dream sequences and stuff because i really love dream logic and uh absurdity
0: yeah i'm I'm with you on that i like um i like that kind of dream imagery and and i think that's what draws me to a lot of um works not only by pension but similar to um you know stuff like uh like david lynch you know definitely leans into a lot of that and and i absolutely love um interacting with that kind of media, uh, i I think it really just kind of the abstractedness of it kind of lends itself to you know multiple interpretations, um not just you know from individual to individual, but within each individual. I think it you know it allows you to kind of come at it from different angles. so i yeah I'm totally with you on that.
3: yeah, kind of spinning off of of the the quote you had used, Luke, my favorite quote in this section was. Um, a piece of dialogue in that same kind of area where it says nothing's as immediate as it was. We might've died then after all and gone on as ghosts haunting this place, waiting to materialize perhaps just at the moment of the transit, the moment the planet herself becomes solid. I think it's, it's interesting for a number of reasons because it, it not only supports the, the kind of strange goings on and, and wonderings from both Mason and Dixon about, why they survived how they've ended up here whether these things are coincidental but it also gets to this idea of i i don't remember specifically what page the the previous quote was on but this idea that by going down one pathway in life one one avenue of destiny you are actively cutting off other ones and you're sort of trend you can kind of transit between them as you make decisions and i was reminded of that quote as I was reading the one that I just read out, because there's a lot of strange anachronism and dream logic and, and dreams potentially coming true. There's there's magic that is is proving to to accurately predict what's going to happen, like with the fortune teller they see uh, in, in the first section of the book that we read. That them thinking, you know, what if we're ghosts sort of going about this transit to show up at, at different moments? combined with this idea of of moving through the the different kind of pathways of destiny makes me wonder if there isn't something within this book in its use of anachronism in its use of you know technology that that maybe still doesn't exist or or certainly didn't exist then that they're they're moving specifically through potentially different alternate versions of of reality and that somehow they're able to to influence what is brought forth to, to the reality they're experiencing by either dreams or or by whatever is, is guiding them along on this pathway. It, it prompted a lot of interesting questions for me in just what the different frames are that they're traveling through and, and what that may mean in a, a larger context of a book being told through frame narrative like this one is.
0: Will, do you want to do your quote? I don't want to potentially steal from uh, from you.
3: Well... Uh, If it-
1: I don't think that's a worry, although I appreciate the offer to go first. Um, the- not first, but, you know, prior to you. Um, the- because my- my quote is, uh, basically two whole pages. It's the- (laughs) I'm not gonna read it out, but it's basically, um, the- the section- that you know, I've brought up a couple of times where Mason is running- running around in the slapstick kind of mode. But it suddenly jumps to, after, um, after Yet asks her mom what's happened to your bodice. Um, in a corner the darkling beetle rustles in its cage, its elytra the same unforgiving white as the great sand waste called Kalahari lying north of here. Where the creature was taken up, brought leagues over land to the cape with hundreds of its kind, arriving hungry and disoriented to be set out with others like a great sugar-ice confection at some harborside market frequented by sailors in the strange. So far in its life it has never seen rain, though now it can feel something undeniably on the way, something it cannot conceive of, perhaps as humans apprehend God, as a force they are ever just about to become acquainted with." And that continues in that mode of almost sinister description of just kind of everyday occurrences, from the beetle to you know, the flowing of the rainwater, to uh, the trash that's piled up in the streets. And it's just, uh, you know, it it jumps from this deeply humorous um, tone to this incredibly somber and meditative one. And then at the end, we're brought back to the comedy when Mason, laying in the mud, having fallen from a ladder, plucks a beetle off of his face and freaks out. And I just I do love, love that scene. whole section.
0: It's just Yeah.
2: I want to say that Mason uh like collected beetles uh and was like a bit of a beetle uh obsessive during his during his life. Um I want to say I got that from one of the, either the Pension Wiki or some something off Reddit. Um interesting.
0: Yeah. I'm curious about that cuz I don't remember i don't think the book would had had gone into that but it would be interesting to see if if he had any kind of like writings on the insects and and beetles specifically that he found i'll have to look into Hmm. that
2: yeah it might have been there's a i guess in the 90s there was like a list serve that did a reading of mason and dixon and i was reading over their like notes
0: and stuff it might be from that Hmm. i'm gonna look into that i love beetles i love bugs so that's that gives me something to kind of dive into. Um, for me, it's um, it's the scene after the transit. Um, I'm just going to read a part of it because it's a pretty long paragraph, but uh, this is on page 99. After the transit, astronomers and hosts walk about for days in deep stupor, like rakes and doxies after some great catastrophe of the passions. The Ziemens' servant difficulties being resolved, the astronomers return to that table, and for the next four months pursue lives of colorless rectitude, with the food no better nor worse, waiting upon the winds. In the mountains, the bull's eye is sovereign. All over town, impulse chastened increasingly defers to stolidity. Visiting Indian mystics go into trances they once believed mindless enough, which here prove, prove ridottos of excess. Beside the purpose, uh, purposed rainy day in, uh, in a nation, of the dutch the slaves as if to preserve a secret invariance grow more visible and distinct their voices stronger and their music more pervasive as if the rain were carrying these from distant parts of town um and we we already talked about how the the transit and the the observation of it just had that impact on the people and i just thought that was a really um kind of beautiful description of 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 the impact that it had and the way it left all these people witnessing such a a rare moment to witness so let's do uh what was everyone's most pinch-on part of of these chapters um i'll i'll say for me it was just the the humor that was peppered all over i think it was um varied in in its style and and the way it was done and um just really lent a lot to to this and i did skip over something that i did want to bring up because i think it was I think it was Will last time mentioned that there was a Monty Python reference um, in the first five chapters. And, and I caught one in here too. And I, I meant to bring it up when we were kind of going over the, the humorous parts. Uh, it's on page 72. Um, there's just a brief line that says, Damn, I say, I said shit, didn't I? Oh shit, I've said it again. No, twice. Smacking himself repeatedly upon the dome. Uh, and that immediately just made me think of the Knights of Knee in, in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. With the whole when they said the word that was not to be said, which I think was it, um, and it just led to them constantly like I said it again. Oh, I've said it again. Yeah, there's definitely shades there. I think my most pinching part of the chapter is
2: uh, just kind of Dixon in general in this in this in these sections, these chapters, and um, his kind of love for and affinity for um, the natives. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think I would have. This is a bit off topic in terms of mason and dixon but i don't think i'd have any idea uh who the hereros were Uh, i wouldn't have any idea that there was a genocide of the hereros put on by uh put together by the by the german government um you know he he does seem to kind of have the same type of uh affinity for and kind of um i'm trying to think of the word like uh, like a soft spot in his heart for the kind of underdogs and, and the people that have been exploited uh, throughout history, uh, throughout his books. It is kind of a, a, a recurring theme of him highlighting kind of lesser known wrongs uh, from history.
3: Yeah. I had mentioned my, mine earlier was the, uh, the sailor who they, they were ag- aggressively trying to wake up. Um, I can read the quote though, cause it is, it is pretty funny and, and, and worth reading up. Um, the only crew member he has ever been civil to is Vivel, legendary throughout the Royal Navy being impossible to wait to stand watch. Countless hundreds of shipmates have tried without issue to rouse their somniac tar. The Admiralty is understood secretly to have placed in escrow a £1,000 reward for the first who should succeed. Audible methods such as screaming having been early discouraged by others requiring sleep, his would-be awakeners have tried hitting the soles of Vivel's feet with rope ends, introducing cockroaches up his nose and rolling him over, administering enemas of Lucas, the cook's notorious coffee, which in several sworn instances has restored life to certified cadavers. Nothing works. They whisper elaborate promises. They light slow matches and place them between his toes. They wrap him in his hammock and lower him over the side, and at the touch of the waves, he but makes a snuggling motion and begins to snore. It is soon widely appreciated that one must catch fever while awake. And trick him into standing someone else's watch whereupon he becomes the smartest and most estimable of seamen. i love that part the the mounting absurdity of it um to to not just <laughs> en, enough of it being a, a coffee enema but a a coffee enema made of coffee that's supposed to be able to wake the dead and yeah. the idea that the the admiralty has has money in escrow for anyone who manages to pull off this task it's it's great <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's. I mean, you think about it, especially that aligned with you know him, him as the, this this ter- secretly turns out to be like the best sailor ever. <laughs> you know, it's like an R and D slush fund they've they've put away some cash for, on the off chance someone figures out some tried and true method to deploy this this genius of a naval officer. Yeah. <laughs> if if I have to choose one, and it and it can't be the. Uh, the cherry coke um, day book entry uh, which, you know, it could be but I'm choosing arbitrarily to not allow myself to choose it um, it's going to be the the scene after Greet um, and Ostra have followed the astronomers throughout the town and seen them eating because you have first of all, this whole little song, whole little sea shanty written song about like these guys running around just eating all these foods that are forbidden to these three Dutch girls, followed by an immediately incredibly meandering and depressing scene of description of why they're going through all this effort to eat somewhere else, where it goes like, um, it occurs to no one that What has driven the astronomers up the slopes of Table Mountain may be, at last, the Table Froome. The pipe smoke, the sheep fat, the strange dinnerware, everything, dishes, spoons, yes, even twinkling. Through the button broth at the bottom of one's spoon are these, well, stories, battles, religious events, personages, with wrapped visits standing about and raised from above, pointing aloft at who knows what, violent scenes of martyrdom from the religious wars of the previous century, obscure moral instructions written in all but unreadable lettering, in the, and in Dutch withal, framing the potatoes on one's plate, or encircling some caudal stifata being passed from eater to eater, and rotated as it goes so that each gets to... View, a separate episode of some forever obscure doctrinal dispute. Soon enough, Mason and Dixon are desperate, pretending astronomical chores up at the observatory, bowls and cutlery concealed in their cloaks they steal away, thinking of oceanic fish, African game, hot peppers, spices of the East. I don't know who writes about food like Pinch and Can.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, we had a... um I, Just to give a little bit of background, um, we didn't have any... um listener questions or comments necessarily. Um, but we did get a comment from someone that I, I th- we're going to probably be hearing from uh, periodically on this. So I just wanted to give a little background, and then I'm going to let Luke um, kind of go over what, uh, what was sent to us. Um, so a little while ago on the, on the pension subreddit, I think it was almost a couple weeks ago at this point, um, there was someone who posted they have written and are working on publishing a Mason and Dixon companion. Um, well, they got in touch with us. Uh, his name is Brett uh, Beeble. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Brett. If not, please let me know. Um, so he's writing a, a Mason and Dixon companion that is coming out in 2024. Um, I don't believe there is a title of, of it just yet. Um, it, if there is, he's chosen not to share it, and that's perfectly fine. Um, but he is, um, he's offered to provide us a lot of historical context to the, the goings on. So his. Companion is essentially kind of like the Weisenberg Companion for Gravity's Rainbow. Um, so it's going to provide a lot of historical context. So he did send over something um, regarding our last episode on chapters one through five. And it specifically was something that, um, that Luke had made a connection to. So um, Luke, if you want to go ahead and um, go over that. yeah,
2: so I'll just be reading uh, part of this guy's email uh, to us. Um, so if it helps re Mason and Dixon's paranoia about the attack on the seahorse, there's the seven years war, as you mentioned, and there's the rivalry between the British and Dutch East India companies, both of whom are competing for resources in a lot of the potential docking ports for Mason and Dixon. And both companies are fighting active wars in India and large chunks of Southeast Asia in order to, to control territory and increase their bu- business holdings. Uh, the Dutch East India Company, at its height, was eight times the size of Amazon and, of course, used even more exploitive, exploitative labor practices. There's such a complicated web of political and business and religious and scientific institutional interests operating in the background of M&D, and so I think the title characters are at least a little justified in their paranoia. Astronomical observations enabled cheaper, more efficient, more profitable movement of goods. And so there are all the trade secrets and corporate espionage we see in, say, big tech today. Mason and Dixon are scientists, and Mason at least sees himself idealistically, but they're also basically looked at as R&D guys. R&D would be research and development. And I think they're somewhat aware of the real danger that creates for them. It also raises questions about their complicity in the whole colonial, colonialist project of England, something that really comes to a head in the section called America. So I did have somebody this week, a friend who's following along with the podcast and reading Mason and Dixon, asked me if there was any um, historical context that was needed to help understand this book. And uh, besides a kind of baseline uh, knowledge about, early Ameri- about America as a colony and the Revolutionary War and all of that, which you can achieve just from paying attention in high school history class, um, I did find this super relevant. And it does kind of tie back to something I said in the introduction episode for this podcast, where I mentioned that Mason and Dixon has cyberpunk elements. Uh, At the time, I was a little bit worried that that comment about Mason and Dixon having cyberpunk elements might be a bit of a non sequitur. Uh, But this is basically what I was talking about. And this kind of stuff had been discussed on the uh, subreddit before, Um yeah, I mean the cyberpunk. The cyberpunk genre is is generally about big business, um, kind of superseding the role of government and um, big business operating in a in a kind of above the law type of way, um, which is interesting to think about in terms of um, Mason and Dixon and and the cyberpunk genre as a whole. Um, but I do find this super relevant to the book. It does explain. Uh, their paranoia in terms of why they were attacked, because the French would have a vested interest in um, in stopping Mason and Dixon from making things cheaper for the British East India Company. Um, the fact that the Dutch East India Company, at its height, was eight times the size of Amazon, is also super relevant. Um, you know, the British, at least the British East India Company, you know, they were the driving force behind. Uh, the colonization of India, um, and this was a time when different trade markets and different colonies to exploit were constantly changing hands. There's always wars over, over colonies and who gets to export what, uh, what valuable resource and stuff. Um, also, he mentions the Seven Years War. Which in America, I think, was the French and Indian War. Was, that was the, what, the, what that theater of the war was called in America, which uh, comes up uh, deeper in the book a lot more. Um, yeah, I just found that, that email to be super relevant and does kind of explain uh, some, a tangent I went off on
1: earlier in the podcast. Um, well, yeah, we can't forget that anytime we're talking about Pynchon, cyberpunk is on the table. You know, William mm-hmm. Gibson, the man who more or less created the genre as we know it today, credits Gravity's Rainbow as the forefather of all cyberpunk literature.
2: Yeah, we, when you read William Gibson, you can definitely tell that he's he's read uh, his, his his Thomas Pynchon and, and kind of use it as a as a starting
0: point. Well, and speaking of. Tangents being, I guess, validated more or less. Uh, I I also wanted to bring up that Brett also mentioned that um, the the X Files vibes were real for him as well, and that uh, there was a direct reference in his companion to that. So that that helped me a little bit. I know I think y'all, none of y'all had seen X Files, um, and it was it turned into a bit of me showing my age, <laughs> I think. Um, but I'm glad that uh, I wasn't too off base with that that connection, and um, so. We're looking, I'm looking forward to Brett's book when it comes out next year. Um, like I said, we'll definitely be hearing from him more and, and I think we're going to try to work on bringing him on as a guest at some point as well.
1: Uh, Cody, just a note, you might want to re-record a little bit earlier because he does mention on the subreddit that the book will be called uh, Mason and Dixon Companion.
0: Oh, did I miss that? Okay. So there we go. Mason and Dixon Companion. Good to know. Um, and he did say it was coming out 2024, right? I believe so. Yeah. Okay. Okay, yeah, I don't want to put any misinformation out there about it, so thank you for clarifying that. So, um, yeah, so thank you to Brett for uh, sending that over, and please keep uh, keep up with uh, sending us all kinds of um, clarifications and, and any corrections that you feel we need to go over. Um, so next week is going to be chapters 11 through 15, um, and we will look forward to any questions or, or comments that anybody has that they want to send our way mapping the zone pod at gmail.com. Um, as always, we really appreciate you taking the time to listen to us and um, we hope you're enjoying reading through Mason and Dixon as much as we are. So we'll see everyone next week and um, have a good week. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely.